Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. Time for Bloomberg Opinion. Right now, we turn to Bloomberg Opinion columnist Narayana Kocher-Lakota, former Minneapolis Fed president, also a professor of economics at the University of Rochester. Uh, Narayana, thanks so much for joining us here. Boy, as we think about the response to the pandemic, the U.S. Federal Reserve Bank, I think, is generally getting very good uh, marks from the marketplace in terms of uh, acting early, acting acting decisively. But you make the uh, argument that the Fed should really consider going negative in terms of interest rates. Give us your thoughts there. Yeah, thanks a lot for having me on. Um, you know, I think the, the chairman laid out the, the case pretty well in his press conference, although he certainly didn't go make the next step of actually going negative with rates, which is he said that the Fed has to be prepared to use all its tools to support the the economy and the recovery that uh, we, we hope it will be coming soon. And that... that um, that means include to me means including uh, going negative with rates, uh, pushing rates down further would stimulate spending um, and stimulate on the part of households and stimulate investment on the part of businesses as it always does, and that would be helpful for the for the U.S. economy. What is your view? I mean, I, I guess you know people look at say Japan, Germany, you know, developed countries with negative rates. It, it, it just doesn't seem right. It doesn't seem like the right strategy, the right uh, policy. How do you view just negative interest rates in general? I, you know, I think what's what's happened is that uh, economies turn to them, uh, as would be true in the U.S. case, when the situation is bad. So you can't just look at a raw correlation between who's using negative rates and their, what their situation is like and say, gee, it looks like all the the countries that, that have negative rates have poor, are, are not doing that well economically. Well, that's because they view them as this emergency tool that they only turn to when, when the, the situation is going badly. Um, the other problem is that there's a limit to how negative they're being able to go or are willing to go in some, in, in some instances. And, you know, a quarter a percentage point or 50 basis point cut in interest rates, it's helpful. It's supportive. But it's it, absolutely not a panacea for all possible economic ills. Has the U.S. ever done that for any appreciable amount of time as a policy matter before? Uh, you know, now you're taking me in a, a little bit out of my knowledge base, but my understanding is that rates did go negative for some time in the, during the Great Depression. Right. But uh, but other than that, no, I it's don't not, think... Uh, right, it's not something typically in the toolbox for the no. U.S. Fed. So one of the things when we think about the actions by the Fed um, is that the concern or the, uh, the expectation, the assumption is that this pandemic has relatively short life measured in quarters. How about if it, you know, if it's just one in a series of waves of this virus and it actually goes much longer, what does the Fed do then? I think that's a great question. I think the Fed and Congress, uh, you know, I think, and, and Treasury, I think there's, you know, there's basically been, been all these uh, entities in the government have been working together. Uh, the, the perspective is by the time we get into this, to the, to certainly we get into the fourth quarter of the year, um, the economy is going to be on a very robust recovery path. And uh, the, 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 they won't need the further further backstopping from from the Fed at that point, and I think that's led the, the Fed and other entities to say, "Boy, the main job here is to keep 
businesses alive, try to freeze the economy where it was in February of 2020. Well, that might be acceptable if you're talking about a three or four month intervention, but if you're talking two, three, ten years, I mean, ten is obviously quite extreme, but two, three years even, you're really getting in the way of the dynamic flow and processes that really drive the U.S. economy where we want companies to go out of business because they're not as being as effective at fulfilling what consumers want. And we want workers to be able to move from job to, to job um, because they're not they're maybe more productive at that new job than they were at the old one. So I worry that uh, these, these interventions are really designed to be temporary. As the shock becomes more persistent, they're going to introduce more and more distortions in the economy, leading to, to, to worse and worse outcomes. So just real quick, 20 seconds, what do you think about the Fed's decision to kind of go into the corporate bond market? Yeah, I, I think that it's uh, – <laughs> I, I, I think that the, the, so it's a questionable one because I think of the fact that basically I think companies should be facing a lot of risk right now. It's appropriate yep. for them to be borrowing at high interest rates because it's a very risky world. I think the, the, the Fed's intervention is getting in the way of that signal from the market. Yeah, interesting. We'll have to see how that plays out in the coming weeks and months. Nariana Kocher-Lakota, former Minneapolis Fed president and Bloomberg Opinion columnist, also professor of economics at the University of Rochester. We appreciate uh, you coming on. You can uh, uh, read all of Nariana's uh, work at Bloomberg.com slash opinion and O-P-I-N-Go. Uh, that's where you can find uh, all of the Bloomberg Opinion work, which is so good. And we love having the folks on here uh, talking about kind of what is going on in the markets and the broader implications for the markets. Well, we're right in the midst of earnings season. We've gotten a lot of the numbers coming out of big tech last night. We had Amazon and Apple, uh, some some big numbers. Next week, we have some more, a lift in Uber and some other names. Dan Ives, Managing Director, Equity Research at Wedbush Securities, is a fantastic person to chat with when we think about uh, big tech. Dan, thanks so much for joining us here. Let's start with those Apple numbers last night. I guess all in all, pretty solid numbers, right? Yeah, better than feared. I mean, investors, including ourselves, were expecting a horror show, a Friday the 13th type quarter, just given the pandemic and the supply chain issues. And when you rip the Band-Aid off, it was better than expected. And I think you combine that with at least some you know, rays of hope in China from a demand perspective. I think that was enough for investors to network on the other side of this dark valley and buy the stock. So, Dan, what do you make of them, I guess, you know, not giving guidance? Is that's, I mean, obviously, a lot of companies are not giving guidance. But for Apple, uh, that's pretty unusual. They've usually been pretty solid about giving you at least a range of uh, guidance in terms of some of the big items. Yeah, it's unprecedented for Apple and I think for many companies. And I think the knee jerk you saw last night with the stock down. And I've talked to some investors that are worried about that. But I take a step back. I mean, right now, when you look at June quarter, given all the variables, all the demand issues, it would be like Cook playing a game of blindfolded darts to give guidance for June. And I think that would be imprudent. And I think right now, most investors are looking past June into September, into next year. That's what the valuations offer. And the important thing is services. That's the rock of Gibraltar. For Apple. I mean, that's continuing to you know, be very strong in that mid-team growth, and that's something I think a lot of investors are focused on along with China. So, Dan, I know there's been some uh, discussion about some of their new products, a mid-price phone, uh, a 5G phone, you know, perhaps a, a new super cycle, if you will, for the a 5G phone. How is this 
pandemic and this crisis, this economic uncertainty impacting those product rollouts? Yeah, that's really, I think, the bigger question. If you look at what we're seeing with unemployment, the average consumer focused more about their health, groceries, and hand sanitizer than a thousand dollar plush iPhone. What does demand look like over the next six, 12, 18 months? You know, and I see, at least right now, from our data points in Asia, it's showing that this is going to be what I would call a moderate product cycle, not the initial super cycle from 5G, but it's a two-part super cycle, which goes into 2021. I mean, you'll see about 10 to 15% taken off units. But when you look at that, you have 925 million iPhones, just to put numbers around it. 350 million of those iPhones have not upgraded their phone in 42 months. So there's massive pent-up demand, but that's also why they have the lower-end version on the SE with 399 price points, which could be attractive to many consumers in this type of environment. All right, Dan, in the time we have left, I want to switch gears a little bit. We've got Uber and, and Lyft uh, coming up earnings-wise. Boy, when you think about those companies, uh, I just is there just no demand for those products? Is that just kind of dry up? What's the status of Lyft and Uber? It's a category five storm. I mean, when you think about the gig economy from an Airbnb to Uber and Lyft, they're really in the eye of the storm. Now for Uber, Uber Eats, which was really, I'd say the black cloud of, on the story, has now actually become a benefit. But this is another one. Look, ride, we cut our numbers 50%. Wow. But I think it's one where you look, if you look at the valuation, can they navigate through this more liquidity perspective? We think the answer is yes. And then you look at, obviously, a much more moderate growth profile, but I think it's a profitable one, and it's one of these investors. They're looking out 6, 12, 18 months with an Uber Lyft in a, in a semi-normalized environment, obviously one that has you know, just massive uncertainty abound. So it, it, as you talk to the companies, Dan, are they – concerned at all about consumer behavior may there may be some permanent changes to consumer behavior that will either work in the favor or maybe against the kind of the, the ride hailing business model in general yeah in terms of the gig economy and ride hailing it's all headwinds i mean there's really no glimmer of positive in this environment i think they're from a business model perspective going to have to do things to get consumers comfortable with the safety of the vehicles from a COVID perspective. And there are concerns. And I think there's one, when you look at ride sharing, what the market opportunity looks like on the other side of this dark valley. And, and I think you're going to have 10 to 15% of consumers that will not get into a ride sharing vehicle, let alone maybe a taxi or, or a mass transportation. So that's definitely a big issue here that needs to be navigated for these companies. But next week, we is the first step to getting some visibility here. And just real quick, uh, 20 seconds, how are the balance sheets right now? The balance sheets, we they'll get through the storm, right, from a liquidity okay. perspective, but they're going to have to cut costs. I mean, it's going to be some, uh, you know, some, some pain ahead from a cost-cutting perspective. 
Hey, Dan, thanks so much for joining us. We always appreciate your perspective on all things technology. Dan Ives is a senior technology analyst for Wedbush Securities. Uh, you know, we had some good numbers out of Apple, and as Dan was suggesting here, the business model uh, is pretty robust when you take a look at uh, Apple, uh, when you take a look at the, the new products they have coming, as well as the growth of their services business, which, as Dan has said, has really been kind of the bedrock for the company and the growth story uh, going forward. So Apple, some solid results stock. After trading off uh, initially, uh, kind of coming back, so uh, investors kind of looking towards the other side of that. Right now, we're taking a look at the markets, uh, you know, a red day in the markets here. When you take a look at the S&P 500, that 33% decline, that sell-off we had as the pandemic really uh, became apparent for investors. We've clawed back almost half of that. The question is, where do we go from here? To help us with that, we welcome uh, Anwiti Bahuguna. Uh, she is a head of multi-asset strategy at Columbia Threadneedle Investments. Uh, Anwiti, we thank you so much for joining us here. I think a lot of investors are just trying to get a handle on has the market bounced back too much, given what we are seeing in terms of macroeconomic data, given what we are seeing in terms of eight, uh, earnings and lack of earnings forecast? How do you, what do you make of the market right here, Anwiti? Hi, Paul. Um, yes, I think the rebound from the bottom we saw in March has been spectacular. Uh, part of it, understandable, given the amount of monetary and fiscal support we have seen announced since the crisis began. But the speed of the rebound has been spectacular and does seem a bit ahead of fundamentals, given what lies ahead for the next foreseeable couple of quarters at least, Paul. All right. So it's really interesting here. Um, again, we had just these incredible gyrations down first and then up. How do you how should investors, to the extent they want to look to the other side of this pandemic, how should they be, be, be positioning themselves right here? So I think if you're thinking 12 to 18 months ahead, where we hopefully, Paul, have much clarity on um, not just the, the not, not just how the economy will respond, but whether we have some sort of vaccine or uh, therapeutics to help the economy open up uh, substantially, not just gradually. I think 12 months to 18 months ahead, we should not see uh, much difference in our positioning. We, I think we should see equities beat bonds and your standard asset allocation will make sense looking ahead, look 12 to 18 months. But in the short term, the the bounce back has been, as you mentioned, uh, spectacular and appears a bit ahead of where the fundamentals are currently. So looking a few quarters ahead, I think it's probably best to be a little more cautiously positioned uh, and uh, think about how this uh, economy opens up and what do we see in terms of people coming back, consumers spending again, businesses opening up and the production takeoff. Yeah, it's so interesting. Yeah, exactly. Because one of the things that I know is, has many economists uh, and investors concerned is just the state of the labor market. This is a consumer-driven economy, and we've had, boy, over 30 million jobs uh, lost just in the last five to six weeks. Just stunning, stunning numbers. Um, how does that suggest to you that this economy will come back? How are you guys, what's your base case for how the economy uh, will, will bottom, where it will bottom, and how it will come back up? 
So that is the key question everyone's asking these days. And our base case is that we will not see a V-shaped rebound in the economy. Now, the markets may behave differently, Paul, and as you can see, they already are. But the economy will most likely see a protracted recovery. Uh, The numbers you mentioned are stunning. These are very expected, though, because this is a policy-induced shutdown of the economy. Um, So we are encouraging people not to work. Um, but the, the, the recovery will dip from, from those levels of unemployment is never quite immediate. Uh, companies go out of business. It takes a time to restart. Employment takes time. Some people decide to leave the labor force. All those dynamics makes us think that this will be a protracted U-shaped or um, a slower recovery than, uh, than, than you than you would think if it was a simple exogenous shock. I think what would be really critical is to build people's confidence to come back to um, to, to, to sports arenas, theaters, and, and start enjoying life again, uh, which drives a large part of the U.S. economy. And we expect that will be a slow process. Now, what would completely change the dynamics is that if we have a sure Um, medical solution to all this, as you can see, episodically, when we get some confidence that there will be a vaccine, there will be a therapeutic drug that helps us fight even even the virus if someone gets it. Those sort of medical developments can change the dynamic very quickly. But right now, our expectations are that those are um, slower moving uh, um, uh, solutions and, and likely we are going to see a protracted recovery. Uh, and and Witty, I'm sorry, I have to interrupt here. Uh, we have to go to uh, Connecticut Governor Ned Lamont. And Witty Bahuguna, head of multi-asset strategy at Columbia Threadneedle. Thanks so much. Well, we are looking, as we hear more and more from state governors around the country, we are really coming to get us get a sense of the fiscal pressures put upon state and local municipal budgets. The question is, what does that mean for the municipal bond investors that have been supporting uh, these entities to do that? We welcome Joe Mysek. Uh, he covers all things municipal bonds for Bloomberg Briefs. Joe, thanks so much for joining us again. So let's talk about this, the, I guess, the stress that states uh, are being put under the finances of these states, and how much can the federal government actually help them out? Well, nice to be with you, Mr. Sweeney. Uh, you know, it's uh, the, the federal government is so far providing uh, help in the form of basically note borrowing from the Fed, but is also now looking at possibly $1 trillion package. This is going to be the next uh, uh, aid package. Uh, Nancy Pelosi said she's uh, heard that uh, there are demands for up to a trillion dollars. So we'll see. Uh, You know, know, in Congress, they're not... uh, they're not uh, meeting right now about it, and uh, states and municipalities are really uh, in a spot. They're they're looking forward to getting some of this money. Well, it's interesting what we've seen, Joe. As you well know, is uh, this virus has has not uh, you know been equal across the country. Certain hot spots, whether it's on the coast or something like that, in states like New Jersey, uh, Connecticut, uh, uh, New York, certainly even California, you know, bearing a, a a higher a brunt of this than some other states. How the securities, how the municipal bond market kind of treated some of those high risk states? Uh, you know, it's it's uh, you know the the bond market right now is 
it's 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 trying desperately to get back to normal. So we've seen sales, new issue sales, the last you know three weeks or so, three or four weeks. So we we've, we've seen people come to market. Uh, we haven't seen uh, you know blowout spreads, but uh, you know you talk about the states under pressure. Uh, you know it's obviously you know a good idea for for New Jersey not to come to market. You know possibly right now, although. Interestingly enough, Illinois plans to come to market in a couple of weeks. And uh, another uh, issue I wrote about today, uh, the Metropolitan Transportation Authority is coming to market next week, which wow. is sort of astounding uh, because these, you know, Illinois and the MTA, uh, in addition to New York City, of course, have been sort of the faces of the pandemic so far. What kind of premium do, are they? Will they have to pay? Do you think uh, to get back into the market? Given what's really changed for their finances in their states? Wow. Okay. So Illinois, uh, they are about four hundred basis points over the uh, AAA benchmark uh, in ten years now. So you know that's in the fives, maybe in the sixes. Uh, which, you know, right now the, the AAA benchmark is at uh, 142. So that's what you're getting, 142 tax exempt in 10 years. Uh, now, are you going to get 400 or 500 basis points? I don't know. A lot can happen in two weeks. But, you know, it's possible. MTA, uh, you know, obviously less because MTA is uh, higher rated. It's rated A2, investment grade by Moody's. And, uh uh, you know, it's it's uh, it's amazing. There's a credit where the subway ridership has dropped 93 mm. percent. So the cash is, is, has evaporated and they've gone to the federal government. They've gone to, uh, you know, everyone you could think of uh, asking for money. And, uh, uh, you know, it's just uh, such a fixture in New York, though, that, uh, you know, it's, I suspect it won't do, uh, you know, as badly as uh, perhaps Illinois. Interesting. I see that state unemployment funds also another area of risk here. They're, you know, going broke from the flood of claims. California, New York, Texas, among states, they're also seeking federal loans. How do you think that's going to play out? I think there'll be no choice but for uh, Congress to make sure that those funds are uh, topped up. Uh, it's just, uh, you know, it's just a, it's an unfortunate squeeze. But this is what happens when yep. uh, you decide to shut down. Uh, I guess it's about uh, a little over thirty percent of your economy, and uh, so uh, we'll see. Federal government to the rescue. Joe Mysek, editor, Bloomberg Brief for Bloomberg News, giving us our everything we need to know about the municipal bond market. And, of course, as we hear from governors uh, around the country, Ned Lamont of Connecticut, we heard earlier today talking about the uh, the deficit in the state of Connecticut for this f- fiscal year. We've heard about that from Governor Cuomo uh, as well. We had some really tough results uh, out of the oil giants Chevron and Exxon Mobil here. Not surprising, I guess, with uh, what we've seen, the decline uh, in global oil prices as supply and demand dynamics just really fall apart for global crude. To help us walk us through the details, we welcome our good friend Fernando Valle, oil and gas analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. Fernando, thank you so much for joining us. Give us kind of the key takeaways, the 30,000-foot takeaways you have from these two giants, Chevron and Exxon Mobil. Hey, Paul, great to be here. I think, you know, with Exxon, it's really just a tightrope. They, they have to balance uh, 
their balance sheet at the same time as not cutting too much spending because their portfolio is in dire in dire need of a revamping. And that's what we saw from the call even with uh, with Darren Woods. They, they can't really afford to cut too much because if they do, they just uh, jeopardize their ability to sustain the dividend into the, sec- the, the, the other half of this, this uh, the rest of the, the, the future. Um, with Chevron, they're in a much more comfortable position. They have a good portfolio. They had a lot of growth that came through over the past several years, and they have the best balance sheet in the business. So they can afford to cut a lot of their CapEx and still sustain that dividend even through this downturn. So it's really a tale to um, of what happened 10 years ago, paying out now, where Chevron really did their homework in the prior decade, and, and they're sitting pretty relative to all of their peers. So for ExxonMobil, let's go back to that dividend issue. We're seeing lots of companies across many sectors you know, uh, reducing or eliminating their dividend because recognizing that this is really going to be a threat to their liquidity and to their capital. What's the feeling at Exxon? They seem pretty adamant about not cutting their dividend. Well, I'd actually say from the call, it was the first time they even entertained the idea that a dividend cut could eventually happen if this lasts for a long time. Uh, Darren Woods, the CEO, painted a fairly optimistic picture about a recovery. We don't know that that materializes uh, as rosy as he's painting it. Uh, but, you know, after Shell cut their dividend uh, 67%, first time since World War II, it's really showed that the industry has to rebase uh, to a new future. And, and we really don't know how consumption w- is going to come back. We've seen in China that there's been more gasoline consumption because people are avoiding public transportation. Um, but on the side of, uh, of trade and certainly on the side of airlines, that demand is going to be subdued for a very long time. And that all impacts the, their ability to, to, to recover their profits and essentially uh, that, maintain that capital structure that was built for a, an oil price at least double what we're seeing currently. So, Fernando, have the big oil companies received any federal support um, from some of the fiscal uh, stimulus plans we've seen? Uh, not so far, not the large cap ones. And uh, and really, there's very limited room for them to, to outwardly support uh, these companies. The oversupply is global, and we're already seeing a response be that the OPEC plus cuts uh, but okay, uh, Fernando, I'm oh, sorry, in. I have to interrupt, Fernando. We are going to go to Governor Andrew Cuomo. Fernando Valle, oil and gas analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. We thank you so much for talking with us. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz One. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.